Amen. Well, on this uh, Pentecost Sunday in which we um, remember and celebrate the fact that the Holy Spirit came and broke through barriers and languages, um, we now have the opportunity to hear from God and His Word. So if you're able, please rise as we read God's Word together from James chapter 3 as we continue our walk through this uh, really wonderful letter that James wrote um, to God's people so many years ago and then also to us. So hear the reading of God's Word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and have a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So far the reading of God's word. And all of God's people said, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Father, we give you thanks for this, your word. And Lord, we ask for your carrying of these words, the people that are gathered here today, whether that's here in this sanctuary or online today or sometime in the future, we pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would guide and protect my words, that you would be the one to mold and shape lives. We pray this all in Jesus' strong name. Amen. You may be seated. Mr. Cow. Yes? How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? I don't know. I always end up biting. Ask Mr. Fox, for he's much cleverer than I. Mr. Fox, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? Why don't you ask Mr. Turtle, for he's been around a lot longer than I. Me? <laughs> I bite. Mr. Turtle, how many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? Why, you never made it without biting. <laughs> ask Mr. Owl, for he is the wisest of us all. Mr. Owl. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? A good question. Let's find out. One, two, three, three. If there's anything I can't stand, it's a smart owl. How many licks does it take to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. Some of you may remember that advertisement back from your childhood days. Others, um, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll? Could be one, could be two, could be three. According to the owl, it's three. But isn't this how we often define wisdom, right? This is how we try to determine who is wise and who is not. So I'm going to ask you a question here this morning. Who is the wisest person that you know? Why do you consider them to be wise? What characteristics make them wise? This old Tootsie Roll advertisement seems to have wisdom pegged, doesn't it? Or at least what we like to determine and think wisdom actually is, because, of course, we're going to go to the fox, right, who is sly and cunning and knows all the tricks. That's wise, right? Well, the fox didn't know how many licks it takes to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop, so the child went to the next person who, hey, maybe the turtle knows best. Because the turtle's been around a while and goes through life slowly and contemplatively, thinks through things logically and doesn't rush into decisions, 
So with all that experience and all that logic and all of that contemplation in, 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 in his life, certainly he's going to know how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop. Well, the turtle didn't know either. So the child's like, well, who else to turn to? Well, we go to the owl, right? The wisest animal in the kingdom. The owl should know because the owl looks like a professor. Yeah, he's got glasses on and he, he knows all the answers. He's been educated and he's intelligent and he should know how many licks it should take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop because he's been educated on how many licks. And the owl doesn't know either, so he just takes matters into his own hands and one, two, three. Three licks it takes to get to the center. Well, it's actually a bite, right? So even the owl doesn't know how many licks it takes but this is how we define wisdom. And the Tootsie Rule advertisement gets it. We define wisdom with knowledge and experience, don't we? We define a wise person who has the cunning ability to apply all of the things of life into our given circumstance. Or the wise person is the educated person, the intelligent person, the one who can give us the answers to navigate through life and its situations. And we pray for this kind of wisdom. We ask the Lord for wisdom, don't we? When things get difficult, when things get hard. We ask the Lord to help us navigate through life. And what are we praying for exactly when we pray for wisdom? Have you ever thought about that? When we're asking for wisdom, what are we thinking of? What are we after? I think if we think about it, we're after answers. We want answers. I want to know what the future holds, and I want the Lord to show me. And I want the Lord to show me in such a way that it's completely and perfectly clear, just like the boy wanted to know how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop, he wanted answers, and so do we. And we want answers from all sorts of different scenarios and from all different sources, and so when we pray for wisdom, we're often in a situation that is difficult and precarious at best, and at worst, we're desperate. We're desperate to know what's going to happen next. The situation has gone from in our control to outside of our control, and frankly, we're living in fear. And so we need wisdom as to how to get through it, because we don't know, and we want answers. When that happens, we're concerned, we're frustrated, and frankly, we turn to panic. And wisdom is our last-ditch effort. Let's throw up a prayer to see if God will give me the answers to what lies ahead. The kind of wisdom that we ask for is the kind that will set our hearts and our emotions at ease so that we'll know the outcome. Because if we know the outcome, then it's not so scary. It's not so hard to determine how to make this decision or that decision. Even if it is something we don't want to do, we still know the outcome. At least we can face it. Wouldn't it be great if God answers our prayers in that way? Wouldn't it be great if God did just lay out all of the answers for us? I must admit that I, I, when I pray for wisdom, I'm often praying for that kind of wisdom. Lord, I need wisdom as we walk through this set of circumstances and really, I'm asking for answers. Give me the path. 
Whether it's windy or straight, I just want to know what the path looks like. Because it's a whole lot easier if I can see what's ahead of me. Or if at least I have some type of light that's shining on the path. And wouldn't it be great if God were to answer our prayers in that way? And there are countless times when I prayed for wisdom like that. And there are countless times when that kind of wisdom would certainly be useful and handy. But I wonder, is that a biblical wisdom? Is that really what wisdom means? To some degree, we could define wisdom on some of these types of terms with intelligence or cunning or experience. However, if we look closely, specifically here at James chapter 3, it sure seems like wisdom may be defined a little bit differently than the Tootsie Roll advertisers might want us to think. Or maybe defined a little bit differently than how we pray and what we expect. So let's together explore then what it looks like to have a biblical understanding of what wisdom actually is. What the fruit of wisdom actually is. And then what the call to wisdom actually is. And as we enter into the text this morning, I want us to consider our own lives and our own experiences. And I want us to ask our own selves the question again, who is the wisest person I know? And why? So looking at James 3, 13 to 18, it's the most in-depth, well, let me start that over. Looking at verses 13 to 18, I want to give you the the most in-depth exegesis that I can possibly provide you this morning. I want to give you all of the three years I went to seminary and the things and the tools that I learned and all of that to say in this wonderfully profound exegesis as verses 13 to 18, here you go, it follows verses 1 to 12. That's the exegesis for this morning. That's supposed to be funny. I guess it wasn't very funny. But it's important to know that, right? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a little bit of a, an assumption to think that, okay, that's not important. But it is actually important that if you remember last week, we were in verses 1 to 12. And the fact that 13 and 18 follows that section of Scripture actually is a vital part of exegeting this text of what we're looking at here today. If you remember from last week or you weren't here from last week, what we concluded was the following. That a person with living and active faith is someone that can control the tongue, that has the ability to, to question their own motivations and, and all of these things and have the ability to control what they say and how they say it. And, and James is coming off of verses 1 to 12 and he's asked the questions, three rhetorical questions really, Can a spring produce salt and fresh water at the same time? No. Can a fig tree produce olives? No. Can a salt pond produce fresh water? No. Nor can someone who proclaims to have faith in Jesus be someone who blesses in one breath and curses in the next. A living and active faith is one that produces a controlled tongue. And then immediately following, we enter into the text that talks about wisdom. That's intentional. Because you see here, James is building upon what a living and active faith is. And he's saying someone with a living and active faith actually is a wise person. They have wisdom. And so he moves into the conversation about what actually is wisdom. And he asks the question right away, who is wise among you? Or the question that I ask, who is the wisest person that you know? 
He's challenging the very definition of wisdom. And their understanding of wisdom at the very beginning of the argument here in these few verses. Mind you, he's still building the case of what a living and active faith actually is. A living and active faith is, as we've seen through the course of this letter, one that not only hears the word, but is a doer of the word. A living and active faith is one that's not partial to the poor or anyone else. A living and active faith is recognized as one that is active and about the will of the Lord. And a living and active faith is one that controls the tongue. And now he's saying to his original audience and he's saying to us that a living and active faith is one that is wise. But in order to understand wisdom, in order to understand what a living and active faith is in regards to wisdom, we must understand what a biblical definition of wisdom actually is and what it looks like. So the challenge that's before us is to see and to check our definition, our understanding of who and what is wisdom. Do we then have the ability to assess our own lives? Are we wise? Is he or she wise? This is what's on the table before us here in verses 13 to 18 of chapter 3. And as we dive into these few verses, I'm going to take them a little bit out of order to, to be able to create this argument of what it is that we're trying to examine here through these few verses. And I want to start actually in verse 15, so if you just want to gaze your eyes on that verse, it's really saying here is the source of wisdom. We must under, in order to best understand wisdom, we have to understand the source. In much the same way that to understand a river, we have to understand the river's source too. And so this is where James is headed at in verse 15. We must understand it. And he says the source of wisdom really comes from two places, and there really is no other option. Wisdom either comes from above, or it comes from the earth. It comes from the Lord, or it comes from the enemy. You make your choice. Where does your wisdom come from? Does it come from a godly understanding of wisdom, or an earthly understanding of wisdom? And he's digging right into our hearts and our lives. He's questioning our own definitions, our own presuppositions about what this actually is. So again, who's the wisest person that you know? Why? Why do you consider them to be wise? And how do you actually determine if they're wise or not? Will you walk into my parlor? Said the spider to the fly in Mary Howitt's poem, The Spider and the Fly. Tell me about it. These are examples of a common literary device called antiphrasis, a phrase that uses the opposite to define the actual. The spider was not actually inviting the fly in for a tea and a biscuit, was she? She wanted the fly to be the tea and the biscuit. So come in and say, come into my parlor as an invitation is not necessarily what the fly or the spider was saying to the fly. It was the opposite to communicate something else. Or when we say, tell me about it, it actually means I already have all the answers. I really don't need you to tell me anymore because I already know. So just a tongue-in-cheek, tell me about it. Yeah, I already know the situation. You don't need to tell me anymore. James is not technically using this literary device, but he borders right on the edge of using it, and he is using the opposite to define and to show us the actual understanding of what wisdom is. But as he's doing this, 
He's referencing back into chapter 1, into verses 17 and 18, where he tells the reader and he tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And here in chapter 3, he's saying wisdom comes from above, from the Father of light, with no variation or change. This is where wisdom comes from. The source of true and right wisdom is from God the Father, not from the enemy, nor from the experience of the world or from your experiences. But how often we get this all messed up, don't we? We get this confused and our understanding, our ability to obtain, discern, and to live out wisdom is predicated then on the source, isn't it? Where does wisdom come from? If the source is pure, then wisdom will be pure. If the source is tainted, the wisdom will be tainted. I was talking to a, a couple of folks here uh, a few weeks ago after church, and we um, were just in one of these normal conversations that people have. And the conversation was flowing in and out. It was a nice conversation. And then it was not intentional, but we got on the conversation of artificial intelligence, AI, and the wonders of it and the, and the, and the joys of it, but also the, the fear and the trepidation of, of AI. We talked about how we needed to continue to be critical thinkers and to think logically through the information that we get from AI as we type into the search bar into whatever AI engine you want to use, it's going to spit out various bits of data for you. And we need to be cautious. We need to be critical. We need to think logically through how we use such a really great tool, a dangerous tool. The information that AI provides still requires a great deal of thought. Why? Because here's the biggest news flash that you'll receive all week. If my exegesis wasn't enough for you, here's even one better yet. Not everything on the internet is true. <laughs> Believe it or not, not everything on the internet is true. And what AI does is it reads the internet. When you type in what is blue, it's going to search the entirety of the internet and give you some answer as to what is blue. But we have to think logically through what blue is. If the AI tells you blue is a truck, well, not necessarily. The truck may have some blue characteristics, but the truck is not a color. It's not a hue of the light spectrum. So we have to understand what it's actually doing. And so we have to understand the source of what AI is doing. AI is running through the myriads of data that we find that it finds on the Internet. However, we also jokingly understand that not everything on the internet is true. Therefore, what AI may spit out to you isn't necessarily true. <clears throat> Mind-blowing concept, right? But how quickly we just take things for accuracy and truth statements as we type away and the computer spits back information to us. So if not everything on the internet is true, and AI gives us a statement, then the source is corrupted, then there's a likelihood that the data that's given to us is also corrupted. Also may not be true. It might be true, but if the source is corrupted, the outcome's going to be corrupted. However, if the source is pure, and the source is true, 
and that data comes back to you, then we can trust that source, and we can trust that that is something that we can put our stock into. So we have to consider the source. We have to consider the integrity of the source of our wisdom. So it is in the case here in James, is the wisdom that we appreciate and value from the source of the the Lord, or is the source of wisdom from the world and what it tells us is wisdom? And what it tells us is right and good. James is urging us to retrieve and mine our wisdom from the Lord, that which comes from above, not from the wisdom of the world. So what does that mean? So if we understand that we have to have our source be pure and true, then we need to understand, okay, how do we know that? How do we determine? How do we decipher what is pure or not pure? How do we determine if it's true or not true? We have to look at the fruit of wisdom. And that's where Paul spends, or excuse me, James spends a good deal of time in this section of Scripture. It leads to the question that's at the very heart of the text today that we read. What actually is godly, biblical, true wisdom? What is wisdom that comes from the Lord? James answered that question first in the negative. He provides us with what wisdom from the world looks like first before he gives us what it looks like from the Lord. Why does he focus in first on the negative? We know that person, right? They always are focusing on the negative, and it's just negative Nancy is a term we use, right? I don't think there's any Nancys in here, so I don't think I'm being... But we know that person, and it seems to me that James, as we go through James, it often is that sense in which he's being super negative, super hard, super critical, and here he is just piling on some more. Keep going, James. Pile it on, man. It seems like he's doing that again here. But why does he focus on the negative, I wonder? There's no proof in scientific terms or even in linguistic terms as to why he does that, but I have a hunch, I have an inkling as to why I think that he does that. My inkling is to think that he understands his audience. He understands who he's writing to. He understands you, and he understands me. He understands that each of them and each of us struggle with understanding what wisdom actually is. Our sense of wisdom is tainted, and it is warped, and we all need a new set of lenses which to look through to see wisdom clearly. He therefore desires to pierce right through our thoughts, our emotions, our lives, our understandings straight away. To challenge our presuppositions, to challenge our assumptions, to challenge our worldview on what wisdom actually looks like. Our definition of wisdom is too often established by the world. A world that closes itself off to the understanding of the Lord and His wisdom. Who is the wisest person that you know? Why? I want you to think of that person right now. I do not know that person. Maybe I do, but I don't think I do. But I'm willing to bet that the person that you have in mind from the very first time I asked you that question is most likely older, well-educated, whether through formal or experience education. That person's probably experienced in a lot of life's ups and downs. 
think I'm probably, if I'm not warm, I'm pretty hot. And understanding who that person you have in mind is. We seek the wisdom of those kind of people, don't we? And, and rightfully so. But we seek the wisdom of those whom we believe best aligns with what we want to hear. And so then when we hear what we want to hear, then that person obviously is wise because they're in line with what we think. And so we keep going back to them and say, yeah, this person's really wise because they're in line with me. And it's easy to have a conversation with them. I don't have to challenge them. They don't have to challenge me. It's just a super easy thing that this person can only feed back into my ego, my understanding of who I am and what I want to be, my desires, my hopes and dreams. They fuel that and they track right along with us. And it affirms our ego and affirms where we are going and how we're going to get there. James takes the investigation further into our hearts and makes that incision a little deeper and challenges our understanding just a little bit more. He points out that wisdom from the world or from the enemy is one that is born out of jealousy and bitterness and selfish ambition. It's that last little bit that hurts, doesn't it? If jealousy and bitterness are, 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 are not enough to resonate with us, which I think those are hard enough, then the selfish ambition really is the one that cuts very deeply. We desire wisdom. Why? Because we want people to come to us. We want people to think that we are experienced and smart. That we have something to say, something to offer, something to give them. That we're valued, that we're important, that we're intelligent, we're empathetic, we're sympathetic. We want people to think highly of us. We want people to acknowledge us in front of others that we are wonderful and how deep we understand the world and them and how we can help them. But if we stop for just a moment and we investigate our motivations behind that for not very long, in reality, we want them to come to us because we have a deep-rooted selfish ambition to be like God. We want to be their God. We want to be on the same level as God. We want them to worship us more than they worship God. We want them to say, why should I go to God when I can go to Ryan? He's got all the answers. We want to be our own God. We want others to be their gods. Now, I don't pretend to think these are actually the words that come into our brain. But our emotions and our actions would seem to tell us that. How do I know that? Because this was the very thing that tipped the scales in the garden, wasn't it? You can be just like God. You can have all the answers. The veil will be lifted and you will know everything. Why do you need God when you have all those answers? Why do you need God if I can show you what the truth of things really are? Why do you need God when you can know what He knows? Why do you need God when you are powerful and smart and educated and you want others to think the same way 
as I do. If we are wise and other people come to us, well then, what can the Lord offer me that I don't already have? What does someone else have to offer me that I can't already have? So really the question is, why do I need God? Each of us has that desire nipping at our heels all the time. Because that's the root of sin. A selfish ambition to be God. To be wise. To be smart. And we want other people to desire our thoughts, our opinions. And we want them to be like us. And when they don't, we feel out of control, invalidated, worthless, useless. And when we're not valued in that manner, the manner in which we desire, we look at other people and we search after those things and other people who we want to be like. Because then through them, we are validated. Because they have more of what we want, whether it's money, power, pride, education, experience, wisdom. After all, those kind of people are worshipped more than me, so why not be like them? And we get jealous and bitter, and our selfish ambition kicks in all over again. And James says, this is the source. This is the source of bitterness and anger and jealousy, and it's corrupted. It's corrupted in our sin and ambition and bitter jealousy. That's wisdom from below. That's wisdom from the enemy, and he actually calls that kind of wisdom demonic. A strong word. He then provides us with a biblical understanding of wisdom. He provides us what true wisdom actually looks like and how true wisdom actually works within a biblical framework. And it's something that looks entirely different than I think we may have thought coming into this text here today. James pushes back at the understanding that we have of what wisdom normally looks like and acts like and, and is. You see, biblical wisdom is not defined as someone who has more experience, more intelligence, more cunning, more education. Biblical wisdom is not defined as someone who knows all the answers or the person who fuels our own understanding and motives or thinks just like we do or acts just like we do or votes just like we do or looks just like we do. You see, biblical wisdom is defined by something different. It's defined by verse 17. If you look at verse 17, we are told that true wisdom that comes from the source of above is pure, then it's peaceable, it's gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Honestly, the opposite of unearthly wisdom. But we don't want to be impartial, do we? We don't want to be merciful. 
we want ours and we want it now. We want all the answers and we want them now. But a biblically wise person is someone who speaks peace and is gentle. Not someone who clamors for attention and control. A biblically wise person is one that doesn't have all the answers but leans into the one who does. A biblically wise person is merciful, not judgmental and critical. A biblically wise person is full of good fruits, or in other words, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. A biblically wise person does not show partiality. See the message from two weeks ago on biblical partiality or lack thereof. A biblical person is sincere. So now I ask the question to you again. Who is the wisest person you know? Does it fit the same description of the person that you thought of before? As we understand how James describes a biblically wise person? Is that person you? If not, why not? The unstated call then that James gives to us here in James 3 is now fairly clear. The call to wisdom then is to investigate our own hearts, our own lives, our own emotions and evaluate, is this our motivation? Is this who we are striving to be? Are we striving for more and more education, more and more experience, more and more of this? Are we striving for more gentleness, more peace, more mercy, more weak meekness, more humility, more service, more kindness, gentleness. Am I seeking to be that kind of person? Am I seeking that kind of wisdom? Am I seeking to harvest a wisdom that is born out of peace and peacemaking? Or am I harvesting in the field of selfish ambition, jealousy, and bitterness? This is the question that's before us. The call that James is making to each one of us this morning is to harvest a biblical wisdom. The kind of wisdom that comes from above, the kind of wisdom that has at its source literally is the one that comes down from heaven. Jesus is the one that ultimately perfectly fulfills this wisdom, this kind of life. And we have to be honest with ourselves. We're not capable of being that kind of wise person. We're racked with jealousy and bitterness, aren't we? We're racked with the desire of selfish ambition and pride. But Jesus came down. He took on flesh from heaven, full of mercy and love, to live a life that we can't live. He came from above and was peaceable and gentle to the point of being silent like a lamb before the slaughter. He came from heaven above to be the person that we need to have. He came from above to be the person that we're not able to be. He took our jealousy. He took our bitterness. He took our selfish ambition. He took the wrath of God the Father upon himself that was meant for you and me. 
And he went to the cross. And he died. That's wisdom. That's selfless. That's gentle. That's kind. That's loving. That's gracious. This is wisdom. One that would lay down their life for another. Friends, this morning we have the ability to determine how we're going to live our lives. We have the ability to walk out of this place and to make a decision of how am I going to live my life. We have the ability to harvest wisdom from above. We also have the ability to harvest wisdom from below. We have the ability to harvest a biblical wisdom from a pure source, an uncorrupted source. The challenge that's before each and every one of us this morning is a simple one. If we have a living and active faith, the faith in which we harvest from the field of grace and mercy that flows from the wellspring of the cross, this is where we are to live our lives. We have the ability to harvest this wisdom from the kind of grace that only comes from the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The challenge that's before each and every one of us this morning is a simple one. If we have a living and active faith, we are to be gentle. We are to be lowly. Sowing peace through peacemaking. Not after our own agendas. Not after critique and judgment. Not after wanting things our way. And when we don't get it, we get upset. We have the ability to seek wisdom. A biblical wisdom. To be a person that's a peacemaker. And so then, once again, may we commit with one another that we are, to church, we are to be a church that is biblically wise. Not selfish. Not critical. Not judgmental. But the one that has good fruit. A church that lives out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You see, because that's a wise person. May we live that kind of life. May we live our lives harvesting our wisdom in fields of grace and mercy because that's what Jesus has done for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise that you did come down from heaven, that you are the one that's lived the life that we could not live. And so, Lord, we come to you now, praying for wisdom, praying for biblical wisdom, also recognizing that we can't live that kind of life, and so we need your presence in our life. We need you to fill us. We need you to nurture us, to nourish us with this grace and with this mercy. And so we now come to this table expecting that. May you use this bread and this cup to fill us with grace, 
to fill us with love, to fill us with mercy, that we can walk out of this place today as wise people that seek to love and serve you in all we do. And so we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.